now. Atena Koto Kato. Greetings, everyone. Hare mai and welcome to the Learns Tuhura Ahu Ahu virtual field trip. We'll begin our web conference this morning with a karakia. Una hia te po, po perimarama, tomokia te ao, ao pakutangata. Tā tai ki runga, tā tai ki raro, tā tai ahorau. So most of you probably know I'm Andrew the Learns Field Trip Teacher and it's just gone 9.15 in the morning on the 31st of July. So this is our second Field Trip web conference and you can follow the written questions for this web conference in the chat window that Barry in the Learns office will put up and they're also on the web conferences page on the Field Trip website. So this morning we've got uh, Louise from Auckland Museum. Louise is our archaeologist for the field trip and, and uh, was on our web conference yesterday. And we've got Greg from the Department of Conservation. G'day guys. And we're going to find out more about what Greg's job is with dogs. He works with dogs sniffing out unwanted visitors. Um, luckily, he sniffed me and he was fine. Yeah, no, I, fine. I was allowed on, so yeah. that was good. Um, so we've also got some other little friends with us. Uh, Eddie the Phil, so he's our, he's my ambassador. Some, for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, Eddie's lost his whistle. Quack, so I'm not quite sure. Something happened on our rough ride over to the island yesterday. We've got Fantasia from Frankton School. And of course, Alfred, we picked up Alfred yesterday from Mercury Bay Area School. And Hippy from Waipipi feeling right at home here uh, <laughs> because there's sheep wandering all around the place. So that's where we are, of course, on Ahuahu, Great Mercury Island. And I can just see a bit of the sun coming out, so that's really nice. It's a bit chilly, for an, um, but it is winter. So, you know, we are kind of wrapped up, but we're hoping that the rain holds off because we're going to go out and explore some interesting sites that, um, that uh, Louise will take us to today to show us um, some of the archaeological work that she's been doing on the island over the last few years. So really looking forward to that. Well, welcome to all our listening schools and to our speaking schools. Uh, we've got Mercury Bay Area School again, and there's also Paidata School. Um, I think the schools had to go to a netball tournament. So <coughs> Barry will uh, answer or ask rather those questions on their behalf, and we'll take it in turns. We'll start with Mercury Base first question, then we'll go to Pyrata and, and so on and so forth like that. Um, there will be an opportunity if we have time at the end for ex extra questions that might come up during the web conference, and you'll be able to post those in the chat pod, and Barry will um, talk you through that once we've finished with the first formal part of the web conference. So let's get underway with those questions. Um, just a reminder, get nice and close to the microphone or the laptop, whatever you're using, and introduce yourself with your first name so we know who we're talking with. And we'll start with Mercury Bay Area School with your first question, please. Hi, my name's Logan, and my question is, out of all the plant life and animal life, how native is Great Mercury Island? I suppose that question's for me. Um, how native? Well, Ahu Ahu is a working farm, so it's really, it's really modified. And of course, it's been modified over many centuries with uh, Maori habitation and farming practices from way back. So 
How native is it? I, if you want to put it on a percentage scale, I would say somewhere below 10%, as just over the other side of the water here, like five kilometers away, there's some islands that are highly unmodified. They are natural and completely unaltered from time immemorial. So yeah, completely different environments. There are small pockets on Ahuhahu, which are really quite impressive as far as native species go, but generally it's all been burnt over and changed and plantation pine and lots of sheep and beef farming. So it's modified. I did notice there were some pockets of, of native planting. Yes. So there's, there's been some, you know, regeneration work happening. Yeah, that's correct. And I noticed some beautiful big old Pahutakawa. Oh, stunning Pahutakawa. Yeah. Really old Pahutakawa. So thanks. I think that was Logan. Was that right? Yep. Thanks, Logan, for getting us underway with that question. So we're going to move to Pada to school for their first question. Thanks, Barry. With 23 par sites discovered, there must have been a lot of people living on the island. Are there estimated numbers for the amount of early settlers? Um, that's a bit of a tricky question. Um, it, it, first of all, it's um, were people living permanently on the island? And the archaeologists don't believe they were. It's only seven kilometres to the mainland. And uh, we think that people travel backwards and forwards very freely. It wouldn't take long on a um, paddling a waka to, um, to go, um, <clears throat> to come out here to the island. And maybe people only came out here to get resources at a certain time of the year, like hapoka or um, stingrays or uh, to, to do fishing at, at certain times or to plant their gardens. Um, the pa are really important because they, um, they're, they're not only defensive positions, um, but also they say to people, this is our territory. So um, that's one aspect to it. The other aspect is we don't really know how many people lived in a house, and we don't know how many houses there were unless you were able to dig up an entire site. So I would... Um, say that that is just one question we can't can't answer and probably never ever will be able to. So when you talk about the house sites, that's uh, for European settlers in the area. Uh, no, for Maori, because Maori would have lived in the pa, they would have had houses, um, and archaeologists can investigate and uh, dig up the ground or dig the ground, scrape it, and actually find the remains of the post holes. Um, which indicates the the perimeters of those houses or the the, the walls of them. Um, so, you know, we don't know. It could have been five people. It could have been ten people in a house. So that's why it's so difficult. And you have to investigate the whole part, which would be a lifetime's work, uh, in order to recover evidence of all of the houses that were occupied at any one time. Right. So when you say houses, they were... That accommodation for when they were here doing what they did at that time. Yes, yeah. or living living in the park, and, and they wouldn't have lived in the park permanently either. Um, they would have been out in the gardens um, and perhaps in little shelters around the gardens um, on, in the dunes, uh, uh, getting shellfish and fish and then retreating to the park when they actually needed to. Interesting stuff. Yeah, right. So we're up to question number two from Mercury Bay Area School, please. 
questions? Hi, my name is Victor. And my question is, how have the Argentine ants affected Ahu Ahu? Mm, that sounds like another question for me. Um, mostly, I think the biggest impact they've had is invasion on personal space. I mean, you know what it's like when you go to get the sugar and hello, she's full of ants. It's not very pleasant. Well, Argentine ants can um, multiply into huge numbers, absolutely millions of them. And when they infest your house, it's a rather intimidating experience. It's not very pleasant at all. And they are quite difficult to get rid of. So that would be the biggest impact, I think, is that you know, invading the houses and personal spaces of us humans but they also cause quite a lot of damage to um, other insects, invertebrates, and um, things like lizards, and they will attack birds in the nest. So when they're really in large numbers, they can influence the breeding populations of birds, insects, you name it, pretty much any protein source you can think of, they'll have a go at it. So they'll strip plants of their seeds, they'll strip birds from their nests, eggs, if they can get a, a crack in an egg when a, as a chick is hatching, that's it, that poor little chick is doomed. Mm. So you're not a, not a pleasant little critter to, to have to deal with. They're, they're quite, quite difficult to, um, what, what's the word I'm after? Control, yeah. But like you guys. Nah. Um, now, the, there is a link on the background, one of the background pages, I can't think off the top of my head what it is, but there's a link to a video uh, which shows some people volunteering here over at Ahu Ahu um, working on getting rid of some of those ants. So have a look at that for some more information and to get an idea about how it all works. Thanks, Victor. And we'll move to uh, Paidata School for their second question, please. With archaeologists from the museum and Auckland University examining Ahu Ahu, have they been able to answer questions for the local Tangata Whenua about their past? And vice versa, Tangata Whenua being able to give insight to the researchers about what they know about their past? Um, we, I'm in partnership with uh, the University of Auckland archaeologists um, in the Ahu Ahu project. And we work very closely with Ngāti Hay. Um, they have some traditions around the island. Um, um, archaeology, however, deals with um, different things. It deals with the material past rather than stories of the feats of um, named individuals. So. I think that archaeology and Ngāti Hayes traditions are parallel to one another and that um, we inform one another, um, but I don't think that the archaeology has in any way um, dispelled um, or influenced any of the traditions that Ngāti Hay hold. They do have traditions of the first waka coming in here from Polynesia, and we can uh, we can say from the archaeology and radiocarbon dating roughly when that was, which was in the late 1200s, early 1300s. 
Um, but you know, archaeology concentrates on those on those physical remains of what people ate, um, where they lived, and generally they are not the traditions that get passed down from generation to generation um, by iwi. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of an examination of of daily life. Yes, it is. Where and then why would you write a song about that? Mm. Well, why mm. um, so. You might put people to sleep if you write <laughs> about that. But you know, alternatively, I'm sure that um, there's some. Well, actually, you can have a look at a video today where we have uh, some a group of students from Mercury Bay Area School singing a waiata, uh, which is to do with IKEA. So there, Barry's just pointing that out. And then that's a really good example of a waiata that's been passed down, which tells a story about, um, you know, early days. So that's a really interesting question. So that's great that you guys asked that. Pairata School. We'll move back to Mercury Bay Area School for your question number three, please. Hi, I'm Danielle. How can you trust that all visitors keep their boats clean and pest-free? Mm. Ah, that's a good question too. And I think the answer to that is simply we cannot. There is no possible way we can guarantee that every boat that visits this island is clean. All we can really do is do advocacy work. So I, I travel around different um, venues, um, boat shows, things like that with my dogs and try and teach people about the, the risks that they pose to these pest-free islands and give them enough and up on how they can help us. Um, sometimes it's not taken so well. Sometimes these people are quite adamant that their boats will never carry a rat. Um, but, you know, I, I hate to point the finger, but um, farmers really take a lot, of, a lot of flack for environmental impacts. And I think it's a horrible thing that they, they take a lot of criticism. But I've got to point out that the, the average fishing vessel, the, you know, the little runabout on a trailer, is parked in a hay shed on a farm in the Waikato somewhere. And generally, those are the high-risk boats that come to these islands. They come here maybe twice a year. They get the boat out of the hay shed. And who knows what's living in that boat? Could be spiders, could be rats, could be ants, lizards, you name it. All sorts of little critters that, that want to make that beautiful covered boat their home. And of course, they pull it out of the shed, they drag it down to the ocean, chuck it in the water, and off they come. And yeah, so that's pretty much it. We can't guarantee anything. All we can do is try and teach people the way they should be treating these islands. I had an interesting chat yesterday. I think it was with you, Louise, about how there's people that come back out here, you know, year after year, and, and they're quite, they, they feel a real connection to the island, and so they're quite protective. And yep. there's a lot of local people that will... Yep will also help enforce those rules. That's or, right. That's right. Boaties are also our biggest asset because yeah. th there's quite a tight community amongst the boating fraternity. They, they really do try and, and help each other. And also um, quite often when I'm here over the summer period, I'll get phone calls. Oh, there's a dog on the beach, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, they really do take care of, they help us. Yeah. yeah. So at the same time, they're the biggest risk, but they're also one of our biggest assets. Yeah. Quite difficult. Hey, thanks, Danielle. Uh, so, part of school question number three. 
With the findings from the garden areas, were there any findings to suggest the early Maori settlers trialled having gardens at different places around the island? Or were the gardens all generally in the same areas, i.e. up high? Um, Maori gardens are actually quite difficult to detect. Um, if there is a lot of stone around and they have sh they shifted the stone out to create boundary walls or to, to um, pile it into heaps, then we can see that there is not a natural um, feature of the landscape and we can uh, say that that is a Maori garden, especially if they're regular, regular lines. But there are hill slopes uh, which have no rocks and so they would have been gardened without uh, us knowing about it. Now there are ways that you can detect gardening um, but it involves doing cores and looking at soil samples to look at starch grains of the crops that were grown like kumara and taro and, and also to um, um, to look for, for seeds and phytoliths of these kinds of plants. And in one of the videos that we will be doing about Māori gardening, I'll talk some more about an area that doesn't have anything on the surface, but 1.5 metres down, we found drains um, and uh, the microscopic analysis of the soil samples showed that there was taro growing there. So I'll take you to one of these gardens and uh, you can see the, the stone lines on the slopes and then the valley floor, which has got this other evidence. Um, so many archeological sites and evidence of Maori occupation on the island is not visible on the surface. It's really experience of the people who are working on the island, of the archeologists, building evidence on evidence to be able to say, uh, well, that's one kind of garden, and that's quite likely that there was a garden there, and then using our very specialised techniques in order to prove or to disprove that that was the case. Phytoliths. Phytoliths. Uh, phytoliths are, <laughs> um, are very small... Um, uh, I, I'm not sure what the word is, that uh, they survive, uh, they are part of a plant leaf and some leaves have a lot of phytoliths. They're almost like little needle-like um, structures, silica structures in the leaf. And any of you know about taro? Um, taro leaves, you can only eat them if you cook them because they have these needle-like um, structures inside the leaves and they'll burn your throat and um, make you very, very sick if you eat them when they're raw. But those silica structures survive in the ground for a very long time. They don't disintegrate and we can look at them under a microscope, a very high-powered microscope, but they can be looked at. Cool. Right, thanks. That was a word that came up, which I wasn't sure about. So thanks for that. All right, some great questions so far, guys. Um, I think, yeah, we're back to Mercury Bay Area School for question number four. Hi, my name is Sora, and this is my question. What is the most interesting thing that you have found out about early human habitation on Ahu Ahu? Was that Sora? Yeah. Thanks, Sora. 
Well, Sora, that's, um, that's quite a difficult question. Um, archaeologists tend to get really excited about everything that they find. We're quite, we're quite a, um, a cheerful bunch when we're out excavating. Um, what's the most important thing? Uh, I, I don't look at individual objects or individual features that we might find like post holes. What I like to see is the map and then look at patterns and look at regularity. So you'll get one post hole and then you get another post hole and then you get a third one and you can see they're in a line and you, you get a fourth one and then it turns a corner and, um, and carries on and then you end up with a, a rectangle of post holes. Um, and that might be a house and it might have a fireplace inside it where people keep warm. And so immediately you can start to write a little story um, that, that triggers people's imaginations about how people live, that they flaked stone in the doorway of the house when they were sitting in the north-facing sun. And they had a little porch on it and they had another little fireplace outside where they actually had the fire and then they took the hot stones inside. So those are the things that I find um, exciting about, about archaeology. Yeah, I think I know. It's a great question, Sora, because, um, I, because I like the answer. Because when I think about history, I always think about, you know, that what would it just be like in daily life? You know, I, I wonder what the fishing would have been like. I wonder what the bird life would have been like. But I just wonder also what that daily life was like and how it felt. And you could, and I, I, you start to get a sense mm. when you put those pieces of the puzzle together of, of, you know, you can get an idea about what it might have been like. I guess that's the fascination with time travel, mm. you know, <laughs> going back and experiencing that feeling of that time period. All history is storytelling. Uh, whether it's archaeology or or it's it's more recent history, it's all storytelling. Right, good stuff, guys. Question number four from Part After School: Was Kumara indigenous to New Zealand, or did it come over from Polynesia? And maybe we talk about taro as well in the same thing. Um, Kumara um, was brought on the waka. Um, and Kumara is, is quite different to the other plants that were brought here, and that includes taro and yam and good plant. Now, good and, and Kumara come from South America. Um, that is their indigenous home, whereas the taro and the yam come from Asia. And what we know from looking at the archaeology of people traveling right across the Pacific um, from Asia down into Melanesia and then into Polynesia is that they brought with them uh, the taro and the yam from that direction. When they got out into eastern Polynesia, like the Society Islands or Marquesas, um, they continued, um, Polynesian voyages continued to South America and they found these two crops growing there, which they recognised would be really suited to their own environment. And they um, brought them back into Polynesia, and then they eventually ended up in New Zealand. Now, um, Polynesians had a lot of other plants that they grew, like coconut and breadfruit, 
um, which wouldn't grow in New Zealand, and banana. Um, and they may have brought them here, but they wouldn't have um, survived in our colder winters um, from their tropical homeland. I grow bananas. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they made different variety. Maybe. Different, different varieties, yeah. I think. Um, great stuff, guys. Just, uh, just a quick hello to Mr. Wright, John Wright, who's just snuck into the classroom there, the principal of Mercury Bay Area School. Good morning, sir. Uh, and we're up to Mercury Bay Area School's fifth question, final one for you this morning, please. Hi, my name's Mika, and my question is, how are the excavation sites on Ahu Ahu protected from being damaged? Good question. Yeah, mm. that is a good question, Mika. Um, the landowner and the um, farm manager are very aware of where the archaeological sites are, and we have pointed them out to them. And um, they, anything that they want to do anywhere in the vicinity of any archaeological site, they check with the archaeologists first whether it is um, possible to do that on that site or um, how they can actually do something around that site without damaging um, the evidence that is in the site. What we can't control is the coastal erosion. And as we know, um, all of the beaches um, around the coastline of New Zealand are being hammered in big storms and um, big um, areas of, of dunes get washed away. And those dunes contain evidence of, of Māori occupation. And we have several here on the island. We keep an eye on those sites. Every time we come out here, we go and visit those particular beaches. And there's one in Coralie Bay, there's one of these sites and we have seen it being damaged by wave activity. So we have carried out three separate investigations over eight years on that site in Coralie Bay. It's a very early site, and so it's really important. And we have been recovering information ahead of any storm damage. So we do a little bit, and then we see that the seas are coming in further, and we do a bit more, and we do a bit more. So what we're doing is transferring that information that contains in the, is contained in the site onto paper and we're taking away the, the physical bones and the stones um, so that it doesn't get washed away and destroyed by the storm. Um, but it's going to be an ongoing problem, not just here on the island, but everywhere, that we're going to lose an entire part of... Um, the evidence or the part of the puzzle of um, Māori occupation of our coastline. And I guess that coastline was a big part of it because the sea was such a rich resource that there would have been a lot of um, habitation on the coast. Yes, yes, that's right. All around the coastline and some beaches it's gone completely. Here on the island and, um, and also on the mainland. It's just disappeared. Yep. Okay, uh, so thank you very much for that, Megan. And final question from Pairata School. How do archaeologists know where to start looking for artefacts? Um, well, I just want to make it clear that we don't just look for artefacts. We um, Artefacts are just a really small part of what archaeologists are interested in. And I've talked about the post holes and I've talked about the gardens. And in some ways, the artefacts are quite incidental to 
that bigger story that we're trying to build up. They are important when we find them because they are able to tell us a lot about um, Māori thinking and their craftsmanship um, and how they made stone tools, where they got the stone from, um, and how they, uh, what they did with the stone, because we can look at the use wear and perhaps some of the plant residue that you might find um, remaining on the edges of some of the stone tools. Like for instance, flax um, might leave a sticky residue, um, or coprosma will leave a sticky residue on the edge of um, a, a stone flake, which we can then look at under a microscope. So um, I see artifacts as, um, as being just a really small part of looking at the past and how um, Māori used their environment in, in the past, and, and that extends way beyond stone tools into what they ate and how they organised the space in their settlements where they had their cooking areas and their, and their, um, and, and their, their shell middens where they dumped the, the rubbish shells um, to where they had their houses in relation to that, whether they had a marae space, a big clear space where they could um, greet visitors and, and uh, have hui. Um, so, you know, archaeology is a, um, it, it, it's, it's a big, it's a big picture thing. Um, but as I say, the, the stone tools do tell us quite a lot as well. That's our formal questions done with. Um, you can leave if you're listening anytime if you need to. Don't, don't feel like you're, um, ditching us we understand that you've got timetables to follow but hey thanks very much guys for those questions this morning some real thought-provoking questions mm -hmm. i've i learned so much on these web conferences i've done dozens of them but i'm i've learned every time we have them so they're fantastic so we can't get the answers without your great questions so thanks very much for that and thanks to our experts for your your time for answering them this morning there will be an opportunity to post a few more questions in the chat pop we have got a little bit of time um, but uh, just a reminder, if you do need to go, that this web conference is recorded, so you can listen to it again later. The recording will be up um, at some stage today, within the next couple of hours. And uh, while you're on the website, have a read of my diary from yesterday. Look at the images and check out the videos that are up there now. So that brings the formal part of our web conference to an end and now you and, and remember of course there's one more tomorrow at 9 15 so make sure you join us for that one so now you're free to post questions in the chat pod and I'll, I'll hand it back to barry who will um oversee this this part of the, the web conference we've got five or so minutes to answer questions so i'm sorry if we don't get to them all so from shepherd ht have you found any, oh, that's uh, Mercury Bay as well. Have you found any signs of musical instruments? And if so, what are they from Sam? Um, no, we haven't found any uh, musical instruments on the island. But in the museum, um, people have collected things here over a long period of time, um, including the previous landowner, um, uh, Pat Mizzen. And um, when he left um, the island, he, um, 
he sold his collection to Auckland Museum, and, and that's one of the collections that I look after. And there are um, there is a musical instrument in there. It is a um, um, it's it's a a big conch shell. Um, it's slightly smaller than uh, what you think of as um, as, as the the big um, conches that were blown, but it's. Um, it's a species called Charonia, C-H-A-R-O-N-I-A. And, and it grows quite big, you know, it sort of grows about that big. And the, um, the very end of it has been cut off, um, and so a mouthpiece would have been inserted into that, and it would have um, made the same sort of sound as one of the larger conch shells. Do you find that conch shell in New Zealand? Uh, yes, you do, yeah. And the Māori name for it is um, Putatara. Hmm. Interesting. Thanks for that. Good question, Barry. Um, another one from Alison. How many stone tools have you found in Ahu from Jack? So maybe we've sort of talked about this a wee bit, but um, yeah, maybe the variety of stone tools perhaps or other tools. Um, yeah, we, we, um, we have found a lot of stone flakes and um, those stone flakes were used for cutting tools and scraping tools, just for everyday activities of doing all sorts of things. And um, there's a lot of obsidian. Um, and we know that um, from, and we talked yesterday about X-ray diffraction, where you can actually chemically analyse the, um, the obsidian and then assign it to one of the known sources. We have a lot of Mare Island obsidian here on the island. We also have a lot of the um, obsidian from Coromandel sources like Whangamata and Hahe and um, Cook's Beach. Um, further afield, we've got um, obsidian from Topo in the centre of the North Island and also from Kaio in the far north. Um, so it's really varied. The local sources occur more often. Um, so there's a greater amount of the local sources, as you would expect. Um, but what the presence of every other source in, the, in, the, in the, one of the sites here in Coralie Bay is telling us is that people were moving up and down the coast all the time. They probably called into Coralie Bay and maybe exchanged some obsidian for um, for something else. And so um, we think of uh, the site in Coralie Bay, and hopefully we'll, um, if the weather permits, we'll be able to go over and do a video in Coralie Bay, uh, that we think that that site was like the truck stop on the highway. And so if you start to think about the sea, not just as a barrier, but as a place that had walker going um, up and down all the time, um, traveling uh, around the country, then um, that was a good stopping off place. We also have other stone materials um, from the Northwest Nelson area, um, and those are the metasomatized argillites, they're very distinctive. And, uh, and that, gets, that was tr traded all around the country as well. We also have basalt from uh, Tahanga, which is um, on the mainland at Opito. And adzes were made out of uh, the Tahanga basalt and um, traded 
um, right down as far as Banks Peninsula in the South Island and right up to the very far north of the North Island. So stone materials were being moved around uh, all over the country. Fascinating. Thanks for that, guys. Um, Barry? Oh, yep. So um, there was a question about what's been the increase in native animals since the island has been pretty free. We asked that, answered that yesterday, but more importantly, a new one, how do they train the dogs to detect different animals and plants? Right. So it's, it's pretty much the same as you train any other animal to do tricks um, or tasks or whatever you want to do. A sheep dog is going to muster across the hills and that. It's about um, reward and discipline. So if your dog is interested in something that you don't want it to be interested in, then you say, Oi, leave it. And that gruff voice and you move on quickly. So the dog isn't um, picking up on your body language and you're not reinforcing that particular scent or article or whatever it is. I mean, it could be a piece of clothing. It could be uh, another dog's mess that it's left, you know? Um, and then when you do come across the, the, that you want your dog to be um, indicating on, then you positively reinforce that that particular um, interaction with that that scent. So you come across a, a rat, you know that you put a rat down, and for instance, I'll take Sassy across the rat. She'll show interest. I reinforce that. Good girl, good girl. Pat her. Make sure she knows that that she's doing what I want her to do. And it's the same as any other trick you want to treat to teach a dog to do. If you want it to sit, you make the dog sit, you reinforce that positively so that the dog knows that sitting is exactly what that voice command means. So you can use a hand signal, you can use a voice command, you can use a whistle, but whatever that, that signal is, you've got to reinforce it for that, to the dog that you want it to do exactly what it's got to do. There's no second chances with the dog. It's got to be reinforced positively right now. And it's the same with um, discipline. It's got to be reinforced immediately that you see that bad action happening. So you've got like a two, two to five second window or up to five seconds. And the, the sooner you do it, the better your timing is, the more positive that reaction is will be with the dog. So is that why my dog keeps digging in the garden? Because I find the holes that he did yesterday. And, and it I, does no good. You've got to catch him in the act. Yep. Okay. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Absolutely. Never too old to learn, are we? We're just the bug. That's old buggers, we know. <laughs> it sounds a lot like the way I was brought up. <laughs> um, rewards and discipline. We've got time for one more. I'm sorry if we haven't answered all your questions this morning, guys, but um, we've got a lot to do. So <clears throat> there was one about the boat ride yesterday, but it, um, it was in your diary yesterday. It was bumpy. I've, yeah, I've got one. It comes up from yesterday. Whoopsie. Um, citizen science is important to projects like iNaturalist, where people can record wildlife and submit them and get them identified by, by others. How can citizens help archaeology if it's not appropriate or even damaging to go looking for sites or artifacts? Hmm. Is this your question, Barry? It is mine, based on, because I, I was listening yesterday. <laughs> Okay, so um, we have um, laws in New Zealand that um, protect archaeological sites from, from 
being dug in or dug over unless uh, you're actually um, given permission to do that by Heritage New Zealand. But citizen scientists can go out and they can identify sites. They can look, um, look at the landscape and see ditches and say, ah, and terraces, that must be a part. I wonder if that has been recorded. And you can actually go and have a look. And if it hasn't been, then you can notify um, the people who run the database, the National Database of Archaeological Sites, and tell them that there is a par at a particular location. And it's the same thing if um, people see um, that a site is being eroded by the dunes or by a road. Hmm. We just suddenly lost the uh, sound and video completely. So Andrew probably doesn't even know he's lost internet. Well, it might be a good time to stop there. So I'm going to stop.